Hey, good morning. Thanks for saying hi to somebody and, and chatting with somebody. And oh, go ahead and can grab a seat. Hey, uh, good morning. My name's Tim, uh, and I, I'm the lead pastor here. It's it's uh, it's good to to be able to stop in the middle of our gosh this this season uh, that is so much going on. And to, um, as we've been saying all morning, kind of look back at the story of Jesus. And so um, I want to I want to do that again right now as we we continue on. Can we just, can we thank Chris again for sharing his story and, and lighting this candle? Like, Chris, thanks for, thanks for doing that. And bro, just well done. Like you just got up and, and went for it and it was, it was great. And I, I don't want anyone else to know this, but what you just said is what I get to say. And so I don't really even need to be up here because I'm just trying to, so you, why don't you do that? Why don't you kind of come up and then I'll just... <clears throat> Um, yeah, that's so, uh, what you shared is at the heart of, of, of this season and, and, and our savior. And so thanks. That's great. When I do this, I want to, uh, I woke up this morning, like I'm sure, um, more than a few of us did and saw the news uh, of what happened in Indonesia, um, in the middle of the night. And so that's just, I read that this morning and it's kind of just, um, yeah, sad. So there was a tsunami and last, I think, uh, there's hundreds of people missing, but over 200 dead. And so I just, I just want to pray uh, for them right now. Uh, it feels like it would be distracting not to, honestly. And so I just want to ask for God's mercy on that um, part of our, our planet uh, and humanity. And then, and then we'll go to scripture and, uh, and listen to what God has for us this morning. So let's do that. God, as we've been saying and praying and singing this morning already, uh, that you are good and that you love us. Uh, and that you're here with us. Uh, and there is uh, part of us on this planet right now that um, is having a hard time uh, seeing and believing that right now. And I uh, think of uh, those that, that live in uh, the part of Indonesia that was hit by the tsunami not too many hours ago. And to, to know that it was absolutely no warning and to, uh, to read the initial reports of what's going on there. Uh, God asks that you would... Make yourself known in a very painful, confusing, uh, and devastating time. And I don't know what that looks like, but um, that there are people there that have lost loved ones uh, and are unsure of others and that are uh, suffered great loss. Um, um, that you are there with them uh, might seem like the most paradoxical truth in, in their life. Uh, and yet it's, it's true that you, you know their pain and you love them. And so would you show up in a miraculous way uh, and help them put their lives back together? And would they find you in and through all of that? And Holy Spirit, as we're gathered here as your people this morning, would you uh, move and work in us and in this time? And Jesus, as everything in this season is intended to do, uh, would we uh, see you all of this is meant to point to you. Every candle we light, every song that we sing, every piece of decoration that we put up, every moment that we pause to, would it point to you? And would we see and hear you more clearly uh, in this season in our lives? And so we ask that you would, you would teach us and lead us now as we look to your word. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Uh, We've, we've lit just now the fourth candle, and if you haven't been here or if you're not familiar with why followers of Jesus do this when they gather in this season, we lit a candle uh, to start the Advent season that was the candle of hope. 
Um, then we lit one for joy, last week peace, and then as you heard Chris share his story, uh, the, the fourth candle is love, and there's a fifth candle in the middle that we'll light uh, tomorrow as we gather, and that's the Christ candle. Um, as we as we look and think about love in, in this season, I, uh, I have something that's kind of weird to tell you. Um, and maybe you know about this, or maybe this just sounds really odd to you, um, but there's actually a government policy that has significantly shaped the Christmas season. There's a, there's a government policy that has shaped um, how we see and experience to a large degree the Christmas season, or again, as we call it, the Advent season, this, this time of year. And, and more than that even, there's a government policy that has is, that is helped to, to clarify by standing in contrast to it, to help to clarify God's love. And uh, I want to I tell you a little bit about it uh, this morning. Um, there's a, a, a doctor who wrote uh, two really, really long letters to his friend Theophilus. Um, the doctor's name is Luke, and he wrote the book of Luke, and then he wrote Acts. It's two of the longest books in the New Testament. And in the book of Luke, we've been looking at this over and over the last number of weeks, and it's, it, it has the, the story that we'll read tomorrow as we gather for our Christmas Eve gatherings. But in the book of Luke, it's, this, it's probably what's known as the most traditional record of Jesus being born. And it starts with, with this verse in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And, and many, if not all of us, have heard this before, but listen to this. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 says this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. That, that decree is a, is a government policy that has shaped significantly what we know today as, as Christmas. And in doing so, it actually helps us to see God's love in the best, clearest way possible. But it goes back to this, this policy. Um, there's this uh, husband and wife, and they have their first son. And uh, he's born, and, and they give him this name. They name their first son Octavian, which... Is just a fantastic name, Octavian. And I don't know if it was a common name at that time or whatever, but but he gets this name Octavian, which is again a, a fantastic name at the playground. If you meet him for the first time in the playground and you say, "Hey, uh, I'm I'm Tim or I'm John or I'm Sally," and what's your name, Octavian? I mean, that he just wins right there. You you win. You're like king of the of the playground because your name is Octavian. But Octavian excels early on in life, and then as he gets into early adulthood, he's, he's acknowledged as uh, just an overachiever, and he's a bright, sharp guy, and he's got influence among his peers. Now, Octavian was not just given a fantastic name, but he was born into a family of, of influence, of power, and of, of privilege. And in fact, his, his grandmother was the sister of Julius Caesar. So his... His great uncle is Julius Caesar. And as Octavian grows up, he gets noticed by Julius Caesar as a young man of great potential. And so what Julius Caesar does is he adopts him as his own son. So in his early adulthood, Octavian has now become one of the heirs to the entire Roman Empire. And shortly after that, within a year, Julius Caesar is murdered. Octavian has newly become one of the heirs of the empire. Julius Caesar is murdered. And now... It's him and two of his basically stepbrothers, newly adopted brothers, Mark Anthony and Lepidus. And the, two of them, the three of them now divide the entire Roman world. 
And instead of making some kind of policy that would allow them to all get along or have there to be some kind of chain of authority, they basically decide to compete and fight with one another. And so they do this for decades, and Lepus is taken out first, and then it's Mark Anthony against Octavian, and they're battling against each other in, in the Roman Empire, in the Mediterranean region. And Mark Anthony goes and gets Cleopatra and says, hey, let's team up together and take out Octavian. But it doesn't work because he probably dominated on the playground. He now dominates in the, the battlefield and he, he overpowers Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. And now Octavian is in the position of authority over the entire Roman Empire. For decades there has gone on of battling and fighting and killing and hate and violence. And Octavian comes out as the victor. And when he's victorious, he goes to the Roman Senate and somehow he gets them to name him emperor. There's actually never been an emperor before. Caesar is in and of itself a title like king or or Pharaoh, similar to that. So he takes on the title of Caesar, but then he goes further and he gets the title of emperor, which means instead of being a republic anymore where there's voting and representatives and how a republic functions, there's now an emperor over everything. But he goes a step further. And not just as he taken the title of Caesar, which was his by right, but he, he gets him to name him emperor somehow. But he goes a step further and he says, I'm going to take on another title. And essentially what that title is, is something that, that points to him as a god. He takes on a title that's only been used of sacred sites and locations, sacred objects, things that were connected somehow to the divine. He now takes that title on for himself. And he introduces himself. He says, this is your first emperor. And the title he's taken on is Augustus. Caesar Augustus. This ruler, this empire who is like a god over everything. He is overpowered by his might and shrewdness and battle savvy and force of personality and political connections. By his power, he's taken over the entire Roman world. And once he's done that, he then does this and says, I'm going to institute a policy, a decree that everyone is going to be taken account of. And once they are, then we'll be able to tax them and I'll be able to fund this power that I have over the entire Roman world. That government policy that Caesar Augustus put in place set the context into which God shows up in a way that he had never done before. That God shows up born as a baby. And the following verses tell the story that many of us, if not all of us, have heard before. Verse 2 of of chapter 2 says this, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in closet and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Jesus was born into this social and political Context where there was a ruler who was identifying himself as sacred, as divine, as a God. And rather than God showing up at that level of humanity 
God shows up at the exact opposite. There's no room for them at the end. They're basically in, an, in a back house where the animals sleep. And Jesus is born to poor, humble Joseph and Mary who aren't yet married and yet are scandalous because she's walking around clearly with a baby bump. And God is born as Jesus into that setting, the marginalized in poverty, the exact opposite of Caesar Augustus, who has all the power that he's taken from everybody else in the known world, in the known Roman Empire at that time. God shows up in that setting. There's a government policy that not just sets the context for that time, but it sets up the moment and the time and the frame of the picture through which we see God's love in its most clearest and visible and tangible form in all of God's story in the birth of Jesus Christ. Another very, very familiar verse says this in different words in the book of John. Chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 say this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He so loved the world that he gave his son. We often connect that to the crucifixion as we should, but he gave his son first as a, as a vulnerable baby. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That God did this to save the world, to redeem the world, because it needed a savior. Because the one in power wasn't good, wasn't loving, wasn't kind, was full of hate, was full of greed, overpowered and murdered, and took advantage of everyone in his path so that he could get to that place. And Jesus shows up at the exact opposite end of the human spectrum at that time with a plan and the power to save and redeem and rescue everyone. God so loved. That's, that's familiar language. It's easy to skip over it. But in the birth of Jesus, what God is trying to communicate more than anything else, what this season is meant to remind us and point us to more than anything else, is that, is that God loves. And not just God loves, so loved the world as if it's kind of for everyone, which it absolutely is. But when saying God so loved the world, it's easy for us to, to forget or shy away from or miss that God so loves me. That while it's global and it covers all of humanity throughout all time and all places and all people, but it's also deeply personal because it's for me, it's for you, it's individual. That he knows each and every one of us. That God so loves you. That he created you. That he knows your name. He knows how many hairs are on your head or how many hairs are not on your head. He knows what you feel, what you experience, what you want, what you desire, what you hurt over, what you dream about. He knows you because he loves you. And the very reason you're able to do any of that is because he loves you. That he created you because he loves you. That you exist because God is a God of love. That he so deeply values you. First John says this, a great passage on, on love says this in first John chapter four, verse 10 says this, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And again, how did he demonstrate that? How did he show that? And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love. Not that we discover God and love him in response, but, but love is actually already what sets the scene. Love is already what sets the context of our existence. That by the very reality that we exist, 
It's a sign to us. It's a reminder. It's a voice screaming to us that God loves me and that God loves you. Not that we love God, but that God loved us first and sent his son. Romans says it even more blunt terms. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, we are where we are. That God initiates towards us, that he comes to us, that God loves us and brought us into existence and then sees our broken condition and steps into it and joins it as a most vulnerable time in history and comes into the most marginalized people group and family that he could choose at the time in order to demonstrate his love for us. That God loves me and that God loves you. That is, that is God's ongoing, everlasting, constant posture towards humanity. That that's how God feels about us. That's how God thinks about us. That's how God is postured towards us, is a a God of love. That gets messed up really quickly. It's gotten messed up really well over the course of human history. That somehow God hates us, or is disappointed in us, or is angry with us. God can be angry at humanity, but when he sees you and knows you, and brings you into existence because he loves you, it's overcome by his love for me and for you. The God of the universe exists and is a God of love. He is love. It was one of my two older sons, and I'm pretty sure it was Max, but I'm not totally certain. But it was when he was in kindergarten, and we got invited into, um, it was like a parent's day at kindergarten. And so uh, Abby and I showed up uh, for kindergarten parent day. Uh, it was a normal school day, and we, we got to be a part of whatever part of it that, that we could be um, and, and, and showed up uh, when they were all playing out on the playground. And if you've ever been to a, a kindergarten playground, it's, um, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, and so we, we showed up, and again, I th- I'm pretty sure it was Max, and he rode on a, one of the little tricycles, and there was a little, like, little racetrack where they, they went around, and then he ran over to the other side of the playground and showed us the jungle gym that he climbed on, and then where he played catch and who his friends were, and, and we just kind of hung out with him for a while, and then they brought everybody inside, and there's a, there's a reading rug in, in kindergarten in, the, in this classroom, and the teacher got all the kids down on the reading rug and sat down there, and, and the parents kind of stood on the, on the outer edge of the, the rug and, and, and kind of watched and listened. And she, she taught through something. I don't remember if it was like states or fun with the letter L or what it was, but kind of went through something in front of the kids and then, and then said, okay, now we're going to move to activity time, which means we're going to go sit at the tables. And if you've, if you've ever had a kindergartner and been in a kindergarten classroom um, and know what kindergartners look like, they're, they're small. And so everything else in the classroom is, is kindergarten size. So the, the, the tables are, are lower on the ground and the, the chairs are, are shrunk um, down to kindergarten size. And so what happens is when the parents are all in the classroom and says, we're going to do an activity at the table, the parents start looking for the very few adult size chairs in the room and start to get their sprinter stance ready to, when she says go, we're going to, we're going to compete for those few adult-sized chairs. And so the, the parents are all positioned ready to run to the tables and get the adult-sized chairs. And, and she says, okay, ready? Go find your parents and sit down and do the activity. I honestly don't remember what the activity was. And here's why. Once we got situated at our table and set up, and again, I'm pretty sure it was Max, and we start looking at what we've got in front of us to, to do. Um, 
look back at the reading rug and all of the children have, have vacated the reading rug and found their parents except for, except for one kid. His name was Joel. And Joel is, is standing there in the middle of the reading rug looking at, at, the, at the scene that's just now happened, that all the kids have paired up with their parents and have sat down. And, and he stands there in the middle of the reading rug and, and looks at the rest of the room and announces this question. Who loves me? Who loves me? Now, he said it like with the, I don't know how else to describe it, but the, the demeanor of a kindergartner. There was no embarrassment. There was no shame. He just announced, who loves me? And we kind of look, and our table was kind of closest to the reading rug, and so we went, looked around the room, hey, well, come, come, sit at the, come sit at the table and join in our activity. And so he came and sat down at the table. What's fascinating is Joel's standing on the reading rug, and he's looking at the rest of the room, and there was just this, this innocence in the question, who loves me? He's looking around at all of his friends who have paired up with one or two parents and everyone's got a parent and his aren't there. I don't know who his parents were. I don't know if they forgot, if they both work, if he's only got one. I don't know any details of of what his personal life is like. But he asks us with absolutely no shame. I just need clarity here. Who loves me? What's fascinating about it is that he looks around and he says, I can see that everyone else in this room has somebody that loves them. And the reason that I can see that they have somebody that loves them is what? That somebody showed up to sit with them. That somebody showed up to play with them on the playground. That that somebody showed up to be with them. Check this out. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. I don't have it memorized. Boom. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him. God shows up. Emmanuel. God with us. God God did this thing that we know instinctually communicates love. And there's a lot of different ways that we can love each other, isn't there? And in fact, that, that question that Joel asks on the reading rug is the question that all of us have asked, and you may or may not know this, but we're all asking it all the time. It's this constant, always-on question. Now, now we quiet it down, and we, we translate it into other things at other times, but it's a question that we can't help, but simply by existing is an always-on. We're always asking this. Who loves me? And in the story that we look at and focus on and retell and sing about in this season is this story that says God shows up. God shows up. God showed up. God will show up again. Unlike any other religion or faith system, the founder of ours, which while we'd like the the freedom to rename it, for now we're stuck with this title of Christianity, But our founder wasn't a messenger, wasn't an author, wasn't a voice, wasn't a prophet. But he was God in the flesh. That he showed up to be with us. That he he came to where we are. When we hear 
and ask that question that's always on is who loves me? The answer that we all need to hear. You can hear it from me. You can hear it from scripture. You can hear it from a friend. You could sing it to yourself. You can hear it audibly from God. God loves you. That's his never changing, always consistent, always faithful posture toward humanity. That he loves us enough to come and step in to our situation in the midst of a government policy that brings more taxation, more record of who you are and where you are so that we know where to come get you. Of one shaped by violence and the ending of human life in order to get more power in the exercise of hate and of greed, God shows up in that moment to say, I love you, and I'm going to do something about your condition. I'm going to meet you where you're at, and I'm going to love you to restoration, to rescue, and to help. Listen to the rest of of 1 John 4. Dear friends, verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Because God is love. He doesn't just love. It's not something he does, it's just him. It's who he is. It doesn't ever stop. This is how God showed his love among us. How did he demonstrate it? He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. It says elsewhere in another one of John's books that we might have life through him and have it to the full. And so not only are we always loved by God, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, who we are, what we think of ourselves, no matter what kind of shame we apply to our life and our being, that God is always consistently looks at us and loves us. That's the starting point. There's not another one. The second thing is for us to come to him and say, I I fall so far short. How is it that you can love me? How is it that you can come after me? How is it that you can continue to love me? And then part of his plan in us is that once we experience that and it reshapes us to the very core of who we are, we're then able to turn and offer that to a world that is too far filled with hate that we actually could be a different kind of people. That we extend love to others, that we extend patience to others when they haven't earned it or deserve it. That we're willing to forgive even when it costs us. That we're willing to serve when it might never get noticed. That we're willing to be hospitable when we're not treated in kind. That we're able to be a different kind of people. That we're able to love Because God has first loved us. As Romans 5.8 says. That God has demonstrated his own love towards us. And that while we're still sinners. Christ died for us. And so we live part of the story. That we can't escape or get away from. That we need. And that we need to retell. Is that while Jesus was born into a, a manger. The plan at the other end of his earthly life time 33 years later is to go to a cross and so we 
we're here in this Advent season, which has these two images juxtaposed against one another of the, the joy and celebration of a new baby born that culminates in his sacrifice, willingly going to the cross. And so would we be a kind of people that live into that story and are shaped by it, even in this season, that we can light these candles and celebrate Christ's birth, knowing that he'll return again and at the very same time point to his death? Because that's his demonstration of his love towards us. And so we get to do that even in this moment right now. That we're going to continue to sing and worship and we're going to come to these tables that are all around the room because they tell the other end of the story that we need to be shaped by and need to hear. That Jesus died for me and for you out of his love for us. And so as we sing, I invite you to come and take a piece of bread and to dip it in the juice. And to be reminded that that Jesus came and was born fully God, fully human in a manger to the marginalized in poverty in the context of an oppressive ruler who took power for himself instituting a government policy that wants to take money from people but created the context for God to demonstrate his love for us and to be reminded that he goes to the cross as the ultimate sign of that so I invite you to pray with me and then we'll continue to sing and as you're ready come to the tables that are set up around the room God, would you help us in this season of busyness and celebration and of good food and time with family and friends and hopefully time off of work. Jesus, would you help us in this season to allow every single thing that we smell, touch, taste, and listen to remind us that you love us. Would everything about this Christmas season the bright lights, the gifts exchanged, the songs that are sung, would it all echo in our ears and our hearts that that you're a God of love, that you love us, that you've never stopped, that you never will? Would that be what Advent, what Christmas is all about? And that the ultimate demonstration of that is both your birth and your death and resurrection. And so as we come to this table now, we come not just celebrating, but also expressing our gratitude for your sacrifice, for your life.